Welcome to another episode of the Gay Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guests today are Joe McDaniel and Rach Pike, who have opened the newest and funnest gay bar in Washington, D.C., the As You Are Bar. So welcome to the show, Rach and Joe. Hi. Thanks nice for having to, us, Art. Nice to be here. And it's nice to have you. Um, so I've spent all this time recording all this information about gay bars that were so important to our community over the decades and have vanished uh, from history. And here you are being two rebels, opening a brand new bar and a cafe in Washington, D.C. So I want to congratulate you for that. That's, that's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Thank you. So I understand that each of you has a little story to tell about their first gay bar experience. And if I'm not mistaken, Rach, yours is Bounce. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us about Bounce? Yeah, so I was uh, 18 years old. I lived 40 minutes east of Cleveland, a small town that was not diverse in very many ways at all. Um, and got outed, didn't really get to come out. My friends kind of started talking around school, small town, words travels fast. I had to rush and tell my parents so they didn't hear it from someone else. Uh, and I, most of my lived experience, probably since I was like five, was most people, I was always kind of masculine in presentation. Um, and I had to, uh, most people looked at me very confused and didn't know what I was. Uh, so very shy and insecure about that. And then finally went to kind of snuck out and went to my first gay bar, which was Bounce and walked in the door and there were drag kings and they were wearing clothes I would love to wear. And they were attractive and they were mysterious and sexy and popular. And I was in awe and people were also staring as I came in. And I realized for the first time that their stares were of uh, affection and attraction versus confusion and, uh, disgruntledness. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a game changer. I was like, oh my gosh, there are people in the world that are like me and, and look like me and with, and with confidence and do that with confidence. And it was a pretty big game changer for the way I viewed myself and felt about myself. I always felt the best that way, but I always, I wasn't always comfortable in spaces that way. Right. Uh, which was, you know, confusing for my growing brain. So it was a pretty magical experience for me. And what, what time frame was this roughly? Uh, I was, I was 18. So I was, yeah, it was like 2003, I think. Yeah. Okay. In the summer, it was at the flats. It was such a good time. (laughs) (laughs) So how long was it after that experience before you decided you needed to move somewhere more liberal? Uh, Well, I was going to college and it was in West Virginia, <laughs> um, which is not necessarily more liberal, but college campuses tend to be more accepting and liberal. And my college basketball coaches were a couple at the time, um, and they were two queer women, and I felt so safe with them. They were amazing. So that those four years were really safe for me. Um, and then I ended up coaching in small town Ohio and then coaching women's basketball at the college I went to. And living life more as like just on the streets of West Virginia, not in the on campus. And it was definitely a different experience at that point. Um, And I think somewhere in my second year of coaching there, me and a friend from the admissions department, we were like, let's get out of here. We should go move somewhere really cool. 
And we looked at Chicago and DC and turns out we, neither one of us were really ready for that. Um, and then I ended up meeting someone that lived in DC and moving here to get married uh, that I've since been divorced. And that was a, a good choice for my life, but uh, it brought me to this community and this family and Joe. So uh, it was a, it was a different, it was wild to walk the streets and not be a freak or not have people stare or see people like you or go to a, a bar an establishment where everybody was queer and they were just like living out loud it was a game changer and I was like 28 I think when that happened wow and bounce bounce was not a women's bar correct wow no. bounce was a pretty broad spectrum male female drag yeah. king drag queen gays <laughs> yeah. whatever yeah it was it was it was a really yeah I mean I didn't go there many times so I'm not really sure what it was like uh, most of the time but the night I was there there were jack drag kings performing and I had never seen such a thing and of course I'd seen queens on tv and in all these other ways but I had never seen kings and I was like this is a thing like you can do this and I never became a drag king for years and then I actually did my first drag king show a few years ago for charity and um, very much enjoyed that I wouldn't do it for money because I'm not that good of a performer but I am do enjoy it and I love to give back. So for that reason, I'll, I'll, I'll dress up. <laughs> Very cool. And Joe, your first experience was at kind of an iconic bar that was a women's bar. Yeah. So I came out, when I came out, I was uh, living in Norfolk, Virginia. And my first experience, I had uh, a couple who lived in my apartment complex with two women who had been together forever and they took me to Hershey bar. And uh, it was, I've always been feminine presenting and fairly passing and so hadn't uh, had as, as much of an experience as Rach had, but I remember walking in and being really struck and in awe of um, like same sex couples being affectionate publicly, you know, and, and this uh, sense of safety. Um, we've talked about that a lot because I've since worked in so many spaces and have really gotten the opportunity to see that happen. Uh, My first gig in DC was at Apex and we had college night. So you didn't have to pay a cover if you had a college ID on Thursdays. And I remember watching this girl who had to have like just come to DC for her freshman year, walk onto the dance floor and see two girls kiss and like the shock and excitement on her face um, in that moment of like, getting to experience that and recognizing that you're allowed to do that publicly. I recognized it in myself that that day at Hershey, the first time I went and just watched people um, safe in a space to be themselves. And I was like, oh, I want to be a part of that. I want something to do with that. And I think it really like sort of led me on the path to get here. So for people who have never been to Hershey, how would you describe the bar? Would it, is it... it was- It was so great. It was such a dive. Like it was a divey spot. I mean, this was close to 20 years ago. You could like smoke cigarettes inside. They had pool tables. When you first walked in, there was this large three-sided bar. The bartender was always the coolest person in the room. And they'd like shout hello. Once you like paid your cover and came inside, there were like regulars sitting at the bar who you could tell that was their bar stool that they always sat on, on that night. Um, And then the cool girls shooting pool, Um, and it was like a little bit, it just felt homey and kind of safe. It was a pretty big space, um, especially for historically like queer women's spaces generally aren't that large. I think they had two or three pool tables and a stage, um, and some tables, uh, and then like a back area. 
that was like another sort of satellite bar. And it was awesome. It was just, you know, it had been there forever. And I actually don't know when it opened, but you could tell it was like well loved on and, you know, they like updated the paint from time to time and had a kitchen where you could get, uh, I think it was like 10 cents for shrimp, peel your own shrimp. And you would like go on this certain night and get dollar beers and 10 cent shrimp. And I remember it was like packed for those nights and people would like <laughs> come away with table, uh, pl- pa- plates mounded with shrimp and peel. I didn't know how to peel a shrimp. I didn't know. I was like, okay, <laughs> some lovely girl did it for me. <laughs> it was like pretty awesome to like get hit on by someone I was actually interested in. It's too bad you didn't know Rach then, because I'm pretty sure Rach could have taught you how to peel a shrimp. I know how to peel a shrimp. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and probably would have done it for me. I absolutely she's, would have. She's quite chivalrous that way. <laughs> it's okay. I've got her now. She does all that stuff. <laughs> Since you mentioned the longevity of Hershey, um, I'm sure you're aware that there's a project that's been going on for about three or four years now called the Lesbian Bar Project. And they've cataloged all these bars across the country where there used to be dozens and dozens of lesbian bars. And I think now we're down to about 20. 21. Um, 21. 22 21. with us. <laughs> and um, Hershey is one of those that survived into COVID. And from what, what you tell me, they are going to reopen. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, the owner commented, there's a Washington Post article we were recently um, in and the owner from Hershey bar said that they're making plans to reopen. I don't know if it's in the same space. I think they're, they're seeking a new space. Uh, Cause I believe their building was used for something else. That was part of why they closed. Um, and actually, yeah, we're actually really familiar with the lesbian bar project. We are um, featured in the documentary. Uh, the crew came into DC. There's the documentary piece of the lesbian bar project is focused on New York City, Washington, D.C., and Mobile, Alabama, and we are uh, part of the Washington, D.C. We are the the story they're telling in D.C., so that was a really awesome experience, and what was what's really cool about the Lesbian Bar Project is it's actually really young women who started the project. They are, like, only a few years out of grad school um, and started looking in quarantine at the history of lesbian bars and spaces for women uh, and they were actually kind of a big catalyst for us getting started in recognizing that places aren't lasting as long or historic places like phase one here um, in barracks row in dc closed down after decades uh, of being open and being a safe space so fast forward to the pandemic (laughs) and Gay bars and bars in general are suffering all around the country. Uh, different cities have different regulations about when and how you can open and what you can do and so on. And you two decide, hey, we should open a bar. Mm-hmm. How did that conversation start? Um, I don't know how it started. Jeez. Well, we had actually, when we started working at Aloha together, we definitely had like a late night post work powwow about powwow is probably an appropriate term. I'm sorry. Uh, conversation about, uh, how this is so necessary and what we're doing is so exciting and powerful and we wanted to do it more places. So our first thought was like, you know, how do we like grow, grow this, uh, grow the number of these establishments, uh, and then 
pandemic hit and so everything slowed down that conversation had totally paused and uh, I think in working at, uh, at that time we realized there was a lot of intersectionality in the community that wasn't necessarily being represented or kept safe at a lot of these establishments and the buck didn't stop with us uh, so we were frustrated by not being able to do as much as we wanted to for for community members and we've just thought like we we could do this this is we've been doing this for years and there's a, a a huge, we have a following of people that trust us and that we've proven our, our worth to and that they are safe with us. So we wanted to make the final decisions on more things and include the community more than we could when we weren't in charge. So as you are, here we go. We were yeah. like, let's do this. And of course it started virtual because it was in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, we just kind of started got getting to work, serving the community with virtual events and looking for a brick and mortar so we could turn it into something that was uh, more sustainable and, and physical and long-term. Yeah, I think pandemic really re required everyone to recheck their priorities. And in that moment of pause, the two of us sat down and were like, what do we wanna do for our community? And what does that look like? And can we do it where we are or do we need to do it ourselves? And came to the conclusion that if we wanted something done that was fully inclusive and fully safe. And we wanted to make the decisions about that. We would have to raise a bunch of capital <laughs> and find a space. And it sort of felt like we knew that the pandemic wasn't going to be over soon. So it sort of felt like the perfect time to conceptualize and work on it. And that's what we did. It was like literally just one foot in front of the other. And now we're here uh, almost a year later and Still it's like one foot in front of the other. Yeah. <laughs> I can, I can definitely relate to that. Um, you know, my own project has kind of a similar uh, COVID silver lining. I started maybe two or three months before COVID um, working on a project for a gay bar that I loved in Atlanta, which was called Backstreet. And they were there for 30 years. And the owner had asked me to come up with a commemorative design for at, to commemorate the 45th year after they had opened. They'd already been closed for 15 years, but they still have a strong fan base. Um, and so I started working on that and talking to people about memories from Backstreet and whatever. And each conversation led to another bar. Well, yeah, we used yeah. to go to Backstreet, but before then we would go to the Armory. And after then we would go to, you know, and so I started working little by little, um, collecting old ads and reconstructing the logos digitally because there aren't any, you know, real copies anywhere. And a couple months later, boom, here comes COVID. And um, I was doing largely social media work uh, for small businesses who no longer needed social media work because they were kind of burying their heads in the sand and hoping they'd make it until the, the COVID regulations were lifted. Um, and so in the course of the next year, I documented over a thousand gay bars that no longer exist. And of course, since that number has grown to almost 2000. Um, but just like that, that time gave me, you know, the, the isolation and not being able to go out to a restaurant for dinner and not going out to clubs to socialize and having more time at home to focus on things, I really dove into this project. And it's so exciting to see that there are bars that are that are opening and that are going to be offering a safe and fun environment. And it sounds to me 
like you are taking the concept of what gay bars used to be like 20 or 30 years ago. When I first walked into gay bars and, you know, throughout the entire, the late seventies, all the way through the eighties, gay bars were community centers. They were safe havens. They were, you know, the places that we went to hang out with our friends and, and meet people and talk about things. And that's really what you're trying to do here. You're not just opening a place to get a bunch of people drunk and then toss them out on the street at two in the morning. Yeah, that's no. exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, this building, I we think a lot about that history um, in one of the meetings of support that we had with the neighborhood. The neighborhood was not supportive of us coming to this space. And we held meetings and invited the community and uh, a good friend of ours, Mike Silverstein, spoke at one meeting. And the first thing he says was, I was 20 years old when Stonewall happened and deeply in the closet. And then proceeded to sort of tell his his own history of what spaces like ours have meant. And I agree when I was coming out, there was there wasn't this feeling of exclusivity that now has sort of kind of come over some some spaces. It didn't doesn't feel welcoming. It doesn't feel ex- inclusive. It feels like you have to look a certain way or be a certain way or have a certain amount of money. And we really want to, we call it queering the gay bar agenda. We want to like come more back into that sense of community that I think so many spaces opened. That was the concept. That was the mission was to provide a safe space. And just like you said, uh, you know, in the eighties, nineties, even into the early aughts, that was what you had, you know, it was, we all kind of hung out together safely um because we were what we had was each other i think there was also like we weren't we weren't as far along in progress in terms of like legislation so there was like this necessity for unity right like we the queer scene was built on activism that's that's who we are as a community and there was such a need to come together to advocate for each other and i do think as we as certain uh, milestones were met, whether it be the marriage or what have you, people that kind of were more accepted, the the more acceptable pieces of the queer community, you know, it, it's easy to fall off when you're not fighting for your thing. And so I think we lost some of that unity and we really want to bring that unity and that connection back to a space. And, and literally we do not all we care deeply about who you are as an individual and that's exactly how we want you to show up and we all want to like learn and chat and get to know each other and find out what each other's struggles are and how we can support one another and bring resources to the table so and nod to the history I think that's so important and something we don't hang on to as much the building that we're sitting in in 1949 was a bar called Johnny's with an IE Johnny's was uh, slated as a gay sing-along and that was 1949. And so we're hoping to have like kind of homage moments in this space to that history and to the those who came before us and that sense of unity and community and bringing people together. Some of the programming we're looking at is like intergenerational. We want the aging community to share their stories with the youth. We want to make sure that those, those historical moments are, are cataloged, are mentioned, are, are not forgotten. Absolutely. Um, you know, the name that you chose for the bar, a lot, of, a lot of bars, they try to come up with these catchy, witty names like Peckers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know a lot bar, about Peckers. You know, 
I recently interviewed a couple of guys who own a bar in um, in San Francisco that's been there for four, over 40 years. I think it's 45 years this year. I'll call Moby Dick. You know, yeah, they, that's a great so, but you came up with the name As You Are. And tell us what that means to you and why you chose that name for the bar. Yeah, so we uh, we were kind of brainstorming names and chatting and I'm a really pretty direct person and I like to stay as impeccable as possible. And that doesn't, I, in my lifetime, that hasn't always led me to be super creative because it's not artsy of me. Um, but I, I had this idea. I basically looked at our mission and I was like, what do we want from our community? What do they want our community to know about us? And, and this kept coming back up. Like we really want people to come as they are, like whatever that means they dress like they identify as wherever they work, whatever it might be. And so I hesitated to share the idea because I was like, it's a little on the nose. I don't know if that's crafty enough because to your point, everybody's got these clever names. And uh, I hesitantly presented it to Joe and and I was like, is that too direct? And, and she was like, oh, let's sleep on it. And we like kept saying it back and forth to each other. And we started to really love the way it like rolled off the tongue. And it obviously was the message we wanted to send. Uh, and we kind of overnight, I think, solidified that we fell in love with it and and started logoing and all that stuff. And it was like, oh, this is actually pretty cute. Uh, the period is actually very significant in the statement. As you are, we use periods at the end of a lot of short statements in this uh, in this establishment because we want to make a point. There's no like buts, right? There's no exceptions. Uh, the the only the only rule in terms of safety management is you can be in here however you are, as you are. You could be straight, you know, so retro of you and cool. Um, <laughs> And as long as you're like loving and celebrating queer community and our culture, we'd love to have you like come celebrate with us. If you're not, whether you're part of the community or not, if you're not respecting and celebrating people in this community, then there's a lot of other bars you can go to and this ain't it. <laughs> yeah, we just really wanted our it to be as close to our mission and as easy to say and understand. And that was always our goal for a name. And it just sort of like, it just clicked and fit and quickly became Aya and everybody yeah, started A-Y-A. nicknaming it. And it was like, it was pretty cool. It was a lot of people have the misconception. It comes from the Nirvana song, which we do love, uh, but is not where it came from. Uh, and, you know, we do celebrate the fact that we are here for the older community that doesn't want a loud dance floor all the time and relates to that song, right? Like, great. Yeah. That's, that's part of it too. Well, having designed a lot of logos myself, um, I was going to comment on the period because to me, that was an important part of the statement. A lot of people will miss that and it's, that's fine. But, you know, to me, it says, as you are, period, yeah. end of story, no more conversation, that's it. Mm-hmm. And Which was exactly what we wanted to get yeah. across. So, <laughs> and, and to put that on, you know, the products that you've designed, um, I could see people wearing it that have never heard of or been to Washington, D.C., just because of the statement that the name of the bar makes, you know, whether you're a drag king or a drag queen, you know, transvestite, transsexual, you know, flaming queen or butch dyke or whoever you are, that's it. Come on, you know. Yeah, we love you. (laughs) And it also lends itself to 
as you change, as mm -hmm. your as life takes you on a different journey, still yeah. come as you are. It might look different next week and we're still gonna accept you just as you are. We had a cool experience that uh, we were hosting a pop-up before we established this space. And uh, we have a friend that's like, you know, one night would be quiet into herself and kind of reserved. And the next night is taking up all the space on the dance floor and can be downright, you know, by definition, obnoxious. And Joe had noticed like, wow, she takes up a whole lot of space. And then like had this moment where she was like, perfect. That's exactly how we want her to do it. We want exactly her to come as she like is. that, you know? <laughs> and, and I think even for our staff and our culture building, like that's a good reminder when, when somebody's maybe not doing things the way you would do them, so long as it's respectful, we, we want to celebrate that. We want to make room for that because we don't have room everywhere else to act as we are and yeah. show up with all of all of our hats, right? Not leaving part of us at home. So And like incorporating it across the board into our, like none of our restrooms have any genders on them. They're just restrooms. Just Everybody restrooms. use anyone you want. The better mirror isn't this one. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so being mindful uh, as we, set the space up that we are are opening it for that very reason right to be as we are and because there's so much intersectionality in the queer community it's it's the queer community touches every single other community we, you know we don't it's not just for the pretty people it's not just for the able-bodied it's not just for people you know, with money people with money it's it's legitimately for anybody that wants to come and celebrate and enjoy with us so so let's let's talk about the physical space itself. Yeah. Um, the only pictures I have seen of as you are bar um, from the outside are covered in snow a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, I know we're trying to get better at social media. Yeah, We've been yeah. really busy. <laughs> but, well, that's okay, and I understand that. Um, but what kind of amenities are you going to have at this bar? What do you What are you offering? You You obviously don't want to be a huge loud thumping disco so you've but you've got to have different elements of what you're doing in there tell me about what's going on inside the bar and what kind of space you have there sure so on our ground level is our cafe um so it functions as a coffee shop we're going to open at noon so people can like bring their laptop and work from here or their homework or meet with friends have you know people have job interviews in coffee shops we're really like a functioning coffee shop we have a full kitchen. Um, the street we're located on has great food. So we're not really pushing any boxes on food. We're going to keep it light and easy salad, sandwiches, soup, grain bowls, um, gluten-free and vegan options, but just a pretty, pretty standard basic menu. Um, but we'll always have food and pastry and coffee and alcohol. And we'll open at noon. Um, and that's the ground floor. On Friday and Saturday nights, we'll have dance parties uh, upstairs on our second floor. The lounge cafe coffee shop will remain kind of a chill space. We actually hung our sound deadening drapes over the stairwell so that even when it's bumping upstairs, down here stays chill. That way, if you're not, if you, even though it's Saturday night, you don't want to be on a bump and dance floor, you can be down here having a nice conversation and maybe a cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> excuse me, the dance floor on Friday and Saturday nights will also function as a community space during the week. So we have things like trivia and book clubs and spoken word artists who want to have events or get togethers using that space upstairs. We're hoping to offer educational programming. So we'll pay an educator to come do a seminar on in their field 
and we'll offer it to the community and at no charge to the community. So that way we can, again, eliminate paywalls for those in our community who maybe have challenges with that. We also have a second room off the dance floor that's fairly large. Um, we're calling it a gaming lounge. We're putting some video games in there and really exciting having an art installation all along one wall that's all local artists. And a good friend of ours has generously just um, offered to curate it for free. So we're not, she's not doing that for pay, which is really nice of her and um, organizing all the artists will actually sell the art off the walls. If somebody sees a piece that they want to buy, you can take it home with you right then and we'll make sure the artist gets the money. Um, and oh, patio seating uh, off the cafe downstairs. So there's some outdoor options. We're uh, hoping to do um, Sunday brunch drag shows upstairs. Um, kind of flipping the script. We're going to have it uh, king led shows, king hosted shows versus queen hosted shows. Queens as guests, obviously, is the show, but um, just kind of flipping the script and that, giving that people. That is very cool. I, you know, as many as many times as I've seen drag kings perform in different club scenarios, I don't know that I've ever seen a show that was led by a drag king. Yeah. Was that, kind was of that your idea, Rach? Uh, it, yeah, I'm, I'm all about flipping the script. So yeah, I was be like, let's just, let's just do it this way. <laughs> yeah. And I think in DC, we're super fortunate. There's a lot of really incredibly talented performance artists. And one of the big tenets that Rach and I agree on is while we're making this space functional and safe and staffed and taking good care of it on a sort of really logistical point, the culture of it, we're reaching into the community for them to, for folks from the community to build the culture and build this programming. We're happy to provide the space and whatever pieces you may need for that, but it'll be your show, whoever you may be um, in that regard, because we're well aware that we don't represent our entire community by a long shot. So we want to just make sure we're handing those managerial range in that regard to programming to the members of the community who have and no, yeah, yeah, and they are, yeah, are looking for a platform. That's amazing. How how big is the space? Do you know how many square feet you have there? Or? So it's uh, thirty three thousand three hundred and forty five occupiable square feet, <laughs> and a sidewalk cafe on one side. Yeah, that'll be really nice there in the spring and summertime. Yeah, to get a nice outside. sun. It's mm. a great street to hang out on too. So. Mm. Now, is your cafe part um, pretty much all ages or, because I know obviously up in the, in the dance club, you can't have 12 year olds up there. Right. Uh, there is a, there is a, um, a curfew in DC. So we'll go 18 and up at least one night a week um, on the dance floor. Uh, we're sort of working that out and determining how often we're going to, but we do want to have offerings for people under 21 because there are a lot of colleges in DC. A lot of people come to DC for school. And I think you make better decisions when you build a community young. So we're really hoping to, yeah. to tap into that and provide that space for folks. But by day, all of our day events, cafe events, um, and even our daytime programming, like for Sunday brunch, are going to be all ages. I mean, fam we have we know tons of queer families with children that they would be happy to bring to a drag show. And we would love to serve them brunch and let them do that with their you know teens so well not to compare you to another gay bar but someone i recently interviewed in your neck of the woods um made the statement that one of the things that was contributed to his long longevity was um it was freddie lutz 
And he said that when he first opened his bar, Freddie's Beach Bar in Arlington, that Mm -hmm. the reason it got so well accepted back then in the days of don't ask, don't tell and all that was because he said they were a straight, friendly queer bar. And some of his favorite stories about his bar are about families and young children wanting to go to the rainbow place mm-hmm. you know, because it's so fun and, and open and, you know, such a great atmosphere. And I get the impression that you're trying to do that in your own way. You know, yeah. I think to- we want, yeah, we don't want to leave anybody out, especially in our community. We know so many folks who've married and started having children and their, their ability to socialize or fellowship with their community is lessened because they've got kids. And so to offer, I mean, a high chair was one of the first pieces of furniture we bought for the cafe. Cause we were like, you know, we love these kids and we want them to grow up. I mean, Freddie's is where my kid had their first like real interaction with a drag queen who Avery was immediately like, Oh my God, she's the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. It was destiny B child's and she is beautiful. Um, and Rick, the man behind destiny is also a stunning human. Uh, destiny's done the entertainment at Freddy's for years. And my kid was like in awe. Um, And I worked at Freddy's for a few years and it's true. There is a, it's a, it's like a neighborhood joint that people go to and, and it does, it definitely makes a difference. And that's part of, part of why our mission is so inclusive of like daytime hours, opportunities for families, Sunday brunches instead of uh, Sunday brunch drag shows instead of late night drag shows, you know, just, finding lots of ways to make the space um, open to more parts of our community. And, and I think we see ourselves as a resource. Like one of my dreams, I mean, we both have queer kids. Um, and one of my dreams is like to see a, a straight couple with a queer kid that is like trying to support and maybe doesn't understand how to do that super well. And they're like, Hey, we can go, let's go to as you are with your friend and have brunch or, and, and then we become a resource potentially for, parents that are trying to do right by their children right and like I know for for my parents you know my experience having them see the community that I was a part of and how we receive each other and how we respect pronouns and how there's zero like reaction or judgment of somebody's eccentric dress or whatever it might be uh, really changed their ability to support me because when they saw that this was our normal which is not what they grew up as being normal they were like oh y'all are just like really normal and cool and great and love each other and I love that you have a community like this so let me jump in there right and it it grew their ability to respect pronouns it grew their ability to see me differently um, and not other me even and if we can be that resource for somebody's parents and employees parents come in to see where they're working whatever it might be like I I can't wait. I can't wait to grow that and educate people in that. And we're willing to make that lift of like helping and educating and do that labor. So now a lot of the bars that I've seen in the past that have been owned by women are, even though they may say that they're open to the entire community, they don't necessarily give off that impression when you walk in there. I'm guessing by what you've said to me that you are going to have a staff that is as diverse as the people that you were hoping to draw in there. Am I, am I correct on that? You're absolutely right. And it's so, there's a common misconception of this like feministic man hating uh, thought process and it's not accurate here. 
Um, and it's funny because when we were in Adams Morgan, the neighborhood where our last establishment was, there were probably like six fairly creepy cis straight men who wouldn't even come in if they saw Rach at the door because she held them accountable to their behavior. Like you can be here. You can't creepily stare at women if they're making out. That's not okay. You know? And so it's having, it's imbuing our staff with a, the freedom and to the language to hold people accountable to how they behave. And I don't think, um, I think that culture is built by your staff and and how they're trained and how you um, uh, give them the autonomy to do right, to keep an eye on people. Anyone is welcome in here and it's the behavior we're never going to clock someone at the door and profile them as anything because that's they're not, we know from our community, that's not an accurate way to know how someone identifies. And the number of folks who have come in and are struggling with their own identity or someone they love and they're like coming in to sort of learn, we're here for that. You just have to act right. And that's okay. We can, we can help you through that. Absolutely. And I know from my own experience that, you know, if, a, if I walk into a bar that says it's, you know, accepting of gay people, queer people, whatever the terminology was that particular year, uh, and you walk in and everybody that is in there is a seven foot tall black woman, you probably aren't going to feel comfortable that the bar really wants you there, even though they say they want you there. It, mm. it kind of it's kind of important to have the staff and everybody reflect the same kind of you know concept so whoever goes in there sees someone that they can relate to on some level and and feel like you know yeah i'm going to bring my friends in here and we're all going to be good with this yeah and i would say it's probably more often the flip of flip of that right like and we dealt with that at our last establishment if the bar fills up with a, an all-white patronage and then our black queer community members walk by the door and it's like well that's not for me because nobody right. looks like me there right and so they even if it is for for that community if it doesn't represent that then there's a hesitance to walk in right if you if it's all like butchy dykes and you're a high femme you're like oh maybe maybe this is like a a dyke bar and i'm not supposed to be in there with them right and we want to get rid of that we want to get like we gay and queer we look all different types of ways we identify all different types of ways and and so yeah our staff reflecting that is vital uh, and I also think just our communication, like we say all the time, like our mantra is everything from love. And so even in the act of holding somebody accountable, it's because we care. It's because we like we're cutting you off tonight because we want you to get home safe and be able to come back tomorrow with your friends. Right. And I regret your evening. Right. Like we are really trying to help you and take care of you. And we're in the position to do that. Um and and like the term the vocabulary somebody uses when somebody walks in the door not saying like hey guys which could be triggering but hey friends thanks for coming in as you are just need to see your ids like becoming an approachable person from the jump i think it's especially important out of safety management because a lot of times they're you know like intimidating bouncer types and we're not we don't want to be that we're actually here to keep you safe and if you're having a problem we want you to come tell us, hey, I don't feel safe with X. And then we will immediately try to solve that challenge for you. Um, and a lot of that is just being kind and smiling and welcoming and, and you know, fixing your face and not letting your implicit biases pour out of your eyes so somebody feels like they're not supposed to be there. Yeah. Now, I also noticed from what I've seen and what I can see right now, because you're sitting in the bar, right? We are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of rainbow everywhere. 
Not, not so far, no. And I haven't seen it in your products either. A lot yeah. of what you've put out there is black and white, which of course sends its own message because it just kind of clarifies the as you are concept by not distracting it with lots of superfluous color. But yeah. did you did you limit the use of rainbow, you know, colors because you want it not to feel overwhelmingly rainbowy? I mean, you're trying where is I there think there's something to inclusivity there, right? Like not everybody you know, identifies with the, like the flamboyant flaunting of the gay flag, the, the flag, you know, the pride flag. And we, we want to be inclusive. We want, we definitely want to be clear who we are and the, the community we're prioritizing. Cause I see it that way. Since we're not excluding anybody, we're really just prioritizing the most marginalized of the marginalized, which is the marginalized within the queer community. Um, and yeah, we don't need, we don't need a lot of uh, fanfare for that I don't think and we will have some like rainbow accents yeah and we'll have we're gonna do some lighting <laughs> we're gonna do some lighting outside that'll make it clear that this is a, a, a very proud queer bar uh, yeah. and we I mean we kind of want the the people our patrons to bring the color and bring the decor and bring the energy and and be the life of this place not you know, just a whole lot of like neon lights that are, you know, rainbow colored, which yes. we will have. But. We'll have, yeah, we'll have the progress. We really resonate with the progress flag. And that's the one with the triangle that also has a black and brown line, as well as the trans flag. I think that one really suits our purposes. So we'll definitely have one in here and we'll have some more color outside. Um, but again, like Rach said, we really think that who's inside tells you what the space is and that we're relying heavily on that um and then yeah I think uh the a lot of rainbows everywhere can take away from just having each other and so we're pretty simple with our decor we're pretty simple like you said with our logo um I think our 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 mission and our words will tell it just as much we do have stickers with the progress flag um and the progress flag is on the sleeve of our hoodie in our merch but yeah, ultimately, uh, we're not doing a ton of rainbow, which I, I don't love the rainbow. It's not my favorite. Um, and not because I'm not proud. It's just, uh, that's just a lot of colors for me. Um, and so we're keeping it pretty simple in here and we'll definitely have the progress flag like on one of our walls inside. Um, I think there are some other nods that we're doing in here that, uh, pay homage to our history. Um, can I tell? Them. yeah okay. go ahead and tell <laughs> one of the things we have a, a neon over the door that says with love so as you exit you're kind of exiting with love and then we're going to place another neon we have um like the the, the green wall like the the grass Live. wall um and we're going to place a neon in that that says pay it no mind which is what the p in marsha p stands for i'm sure i'm not telling you anything you don't know already uh, but there's a lot of especially youth that don't necessarily know that. And so it's an educational opportunity. It's a way to pay homage. Uh, and and it's a, what a great statement, right? Pay it, no mind. Keep it pushing. We're doing what we're doing and we're going to be all right in here. So um, so there are definitely like going to be tons of trinkets of history and queer uh, celebration, you know, in this space. And I, th- I think maybe that's, that's maybe great... not a ton of rainbows. <laughs> I, I'm I'm with you on that. You know, especially the traditional striped rainbow uh, representation. You know, I I don't think I own a single article of clothing that has that striped rainbow on it. I do have a pair of rainbow tie-dye all-stars that uh, I occasionally wear, 
but they don't when you look at them nobody thinks oh those that's the gay flag they yeah. think it's just colorful tie-dyed <laughs> um right it's tie-dyed this guy's a hippie where did, did he mm-hmm. just come from hate ashbury um, <laughs> so i know you're not focusing you know your whole effort on the consumption of alcohol but Joe, you do hold a special distinction in the world of queer bartenders. I do. And I understand our mutual friend, Patrick Gallino, was involved in that distinction. So why don't you tell us about your experience with the Stoli Key West Cocktail Classic? Good job getting the whole name. Yes, (laughs) I am the international champion um, from the 2018 Key West Cocktail Classic Stoli really wanted to call attention to queer bars and queer bartenders. And so Patrick piloted this program. It, they've done six competitions, of course, before COVID. Um, I won year five uh, in 2018 and got to go to Key West for a week and compete as part of Key West's Pride events. Uh, and I competed against 14 other cities. So the Stoli Key West Cocktail Classic goes city to city and has regional championships. Bartenders from all over each of those cities compete. One winner then goes to Key West to compete for $15,000 in charity. So I went uh, in June of 2018 and uh, got to donate money to charity and, and win this really, and meet amazing, I now have bartender friends in like several major cities. Um, and have maintained friendships with a lot of them, which is so amazing. And it was a really cool way to fellowship with other queer people and why our why our culture is important, especially I think Patrick's thought was very similar to the Lesbian Bar Project's thought was that our spaces are, are going away or we're not, you know, having sort of as much respect or, or gratitude for those spaces as we did in previous, you know, generations. And so, yeah, I'm a championship bartender. Champ is here. <laughs> and what was what was the key to your success? Did you make a cocktail that just blew everybody out of the park, or what did you do <laughs> that that yeah. you know brought you up to that level? You, you know, know, it's this charisma. I was going to say it's really <laughs> funny. Actually, several people um, made far better cocktails than I did. Um, our uh, com- competitor from Vancouver is named Kiara. Kiara is chef's kiss incredible bartender she like brought she like charred pineapple for this incredible cocktail and then jonathan tan type who's in um west hollywood put activated charcoal just enough to make the vodka black and made a black lychee martini it was stunning i made a twist on a vodka soda it was like the simplest i think of all the beverages but i think a lot of what took me through the championships is I'm a volume bartender. I've always been in like volume nightclub style spaces. Um, and so I make a mark uh, and I really involved the crowd a lot and involved my fellow competitors um, and just spoke a lot to my experience. And again, close to 20 years in this industry and watching people care uh, about each other and watching how impactful a space can be um, when it's done right. And so yeah, I think the key to my success was uh, being really charming and continuing to be like, let me hear you. And the crowd would go crazy. And that looked great for me. <laughs> well, and on a practical level, that's probably more relevant to 
day-to-day bartending, I mean, most people are not going to want to go into a bar and spend 15 minutes watching somebody char pineapple to give them a cocktail. Um, but, you know, the charisma, the personality, and taking something simple and twisting it a little bit and making it your own is probably more practical on a day-to-day basis than, you know, all the... Yeah. Yeah. Also, I mean, one of Joe's greatest gifts is that she does a great job connecting people in a very organic, casual, comfortable way with their consent. And I think that in, I wasn't there, I didn't know her, but I've seen videos and I know her now and I've watched her behind the bar. And I think her ability to just like get people excited, make everybody feel welcome, and then find ways to connect the things that are relatable across the crowd uh, is and involve them is like the game changer, right? When everybody wants to be there, it's like, I almost drink anything. If it's fun, like, yeah. let's go. <laughs> yeah, we're actually really excited to train sort of a new generation uh, of bartenders and baristas and service industry folks, because um, you're the host, you know, and we have, uh, we had this saying at our last place and we still say this, you really can't be cool. Like there's oftentimes if you go into a bar, people are too cool when they're behind the bar and there are cool bartenders, make no mistake, mixologists. I don't know anything about why you slap mint around before you use it. I don't know about that stuff. I'm not that kind of bartender. And I have great respect for the capacity to like taste something and like pick exactly where it goes. Like me, I can make like 400 vodka sodas in an hour, like no problem. (laughs) Um, I've always been volume, but I think the, the thing that goes across the board is you are on a bit of a stage and you are in charge of the party. So giving people that opportunity to connect with their community, it's powerful if you let it be. Yeah. I am so excited about this new bar that you're opening and about the idea of being able to walk in there in pretty much any state of dress that's legally acceptable. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't want to encourage people to come in there and like, you know, completely assless chaps or something. And Well, we're also very big on equity, equity, right? So this was a big challenge at the last establishment because it was mixed. It was like a gay bar and a lesbian bar like next to each other. And um, people would always, gay men would always want to have their shirts off. And then they'd come into the lesbian bar and I was like, oh, so you have to put your shirt on because if my nipples can't be out, neither can yours. That's just equity. And, uh, and when mine can be, be shirtless. It's all good. Uh, so that's part of that would be part that will be part of us mm-hmm. holding people accountable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds like such a fun place. And I can just see Patrick walking into there in one of his Wait. incredibly flamboyant outfits, capes yeah. and, and, and platform shoes and sparkly pants and, and a big flashy hat yeah. uh, and feeling just as comfortable as somebody in there in a flannel shirt and, you know, khakis or something. Or somebody who came straight, right, came straight from work and still has a tie on. Yeah, Yeah, one of the great, two of the great moments of my life were um, the parades I got to be. So I, we did the Key West parade the year I won. And then we also uh, were together for San Diego Pride. And I got to sit on the Stoli car for San Diego Pride in 2018 with Patrick. And it's very exciting to like be on a convertible in a pride parade with Patrick Galano. Uh, I think he's really, um, it's so interesting how flamboyant he is because he's wildly modest about the way he really changed the culture at Stoli to include the rest of us. And I thought that was really cool. I, I have had that conversation with him a few times and I told him that I was 
really impressed not only at the work that he does, but the fact that Stoli has, unlike so many other companies that do what the Europeans call pinkwashing, where they just kind of slap a rainbow up in June and act yep. like they're gay friendly, that Stoli has not just made, you know, a couple of, quote, gay products and thrown them out there, but they actually orchestrate big events um, like the, the Stoli Key West Cocktail cha- uh, Challenge and like the, the um, high heel drop in Key West for New mm-hmm. Year's. And they, they get fully behind them. Yeah. You know, and they've allowed him to take what's in his head and what his feeling of expressing, you know, queer life and mm-hmm. and support it and push it out there. And that is so important. So I'm I'm really glad that, you know, of course, that you got to connect with him and that I got to connect with him and that we have somebody like him in our community, because I don't know of any other company that has an LGBTQ ambassador who is as out there as he is. Yeah, and originally they asked Stoli, I, you'd have to check with Patrick for direct details, but from what I understand, Stoli asked him to consult, and he said, if I'm going to do this, you need to create an, a, a, a position for me so that we I can hold you accountable. And so yeah, like yes. all of those steps he really pushed for, and an interesting tidbit Island House in Key West is an all-male establishment. Um, women are not generally allowed in there. And generally, the feminist in me is like, oh, and <laughs> Key West was very much a haven during the AIDS pandemic uh, epidemic for, uh, for safety. And I think the reason it was set up that way decades ago was for the safety of its patronage from that standpoint. So I have some grace for that. But the only four hours a year that Island House is not men only is for the opening party of the Stoli Key West Classic because Patrick was like, women have to be able to come to this. That's yeah, it's an amazing, amazing I mean, program that he's put together. And he told me in his interview, I interviewed him a month or so ago. He told me in his interview, it started out as a six month commitment and has lasted well over 10 years. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of how committed both he and Stoli are. To, you know, to the LGBTQ programs. Yeah. Well, I'm just so excited about your new bar and hopefully at some point in the not too distant future, I will get back up to DC. Please, it's been a minute since that. I've been there and I would love to experience as you are and uh, to find out, you know, just what a fabulous success it ends up being because it is truly a breath of fresh air in the world of queer bars. And I, I even hesitate to call it a bar because it seems like it's so much more than that. Yeah. But in the, in the world of, of queer spaces, it's just mm-hmm. such a, such a breath of fresh air. So I want to congratulate both of you on coming up with this great concept and actually taking it to fruition. And from what I understand about a week or so ago, when you had your final hearing about your uh, license in front of the liquor board, you, despite the early objections of the community and other people, you won unanimous approval. We so did. Congratulations. You really have convinced some people up there that you have something going on that is, is worthwhile. We got really fortunate. The community response, the letters of support and community members who sat on these like sure. four hour long Zoom calls and, and spoke for us between the community and our super awesome lawyer, we really um, 
can't take credit for that win. <laughs> we did what we said we would do in terms of sound mitigation and, and, and meeting with the community. And it was really the community that vouching for us that uh, brought the ANC around to, to believe what we said we were going to do, we were going to do. That's the point. And we will. We're going to we take will. good care of our stuff. That's what we do. <laughs> well, congratulations. And thank you for taking the time to tell us about your first bar experiences, as well as the wonderful As You Are project that we're all looking forward to visiting. Thanks for thank having us, so Art, much. and thank you for archiving this yeah. and interviewing such awesome members of the yeah. community. This is huge. This is what we need. This is how our legacy lives. Yeah. That concludes another episode of the Gay Bar Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.